This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. When I was in school, I did anything, and everything, to get out of a test. Seriously. Ask my parents. I drove them nuts. I often refused to go to school on test days, or simply pretended I was sick to get out of class just as an exam was being handed out. Tests made me nervous, and I hated the idea that one number could forever define my intelligence. Today, more and more students are refusing to take standardized tests. Unlike my own mini-protest, however, students who refuse to take the tests are part of what's called the opt-out movement. This movement is found in many states across America and unites people from across the political divide. Although the movement includes a lot of uh, liberal or progressives in the American context, it also includes a lot of conservatives or people that vote the Republican Party in previous elections. So it's a movement that brings together both sides of the political spectrum. With me to talk about this growing movement is Oren Pismoni-Levy, an assistant professor of international and comparative education at Teachers College, Columbia University. He has been researching the opt-out movement, situating it within the global context. What motivates people to join the movement? What results have been produced? What is interesting is that our analysis suggests that the different groups in terms of the political or political ideology uh, in the movement support the movement or engage in the movement for different reasons. In my conversation with Oren today, we discuss his and Benjamin Kostman's report entitled How Americans View the Opt-Out Movement. Oren Pismoni-Levy, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will, and uh, thank you so much for inviting me. So what sort of research have you done on the opt-out movement? Our research on the opt-out movement include two separate studies. Uh, the first study I conducted with Dr. Nancy green Sariski at Teachers College, and that was done in the uh, winter and spring of uh, 2016. And it's a survey of opt-out activists uh, across the country. We interviewed activists uh, in different places. We interviewed coordinators of the movement and teachers. And we developed an instrument to try and capture for the first time who is opting out and what's the motivation to opt out. And the survey included a set of uh, demographics questionnaire as well, so we can uh, understand better who, who are they, not only in terms of motivation, but also in terms of the demographics, the, the resources that they bring to the movement. As a follow-up study, uh, last summer in 2017, I conducted another study with one of my students, Benjamin Kosman, looking at how Americans view the movement. So we collected data through two different panels, uh, online panels, uh, and interviewed around 2,000 American adults, age 18 to 65, from all across, the, all across the country. And we asked them questions about the movement in terms of how much they are aware of the movement, how much they support or endorse the movement. And um, some of them were asked follow-up questions to the fact of, if they support why, and if they oppose, why they oppose. That study was interesting, uh, not only because we got the opportunity to see what the public think about the movement, but we also played with wording and framing of the movement. 
So most studies are asking about parents who excuse their kids from testing. And we believe uh, that the term excusing kids from testing is very neutral and doesn't necessarily capture the fact that this is a political or ethical act. So uh, using randomized research design, we divided our sample into three groups and each of them got the same set of questions just using different wording. In one group, we described these parents as opting out. In other group, they were boycotting the test. And the control group was the usual uh, language of excusing kids from uh, the exam. So using this randomized uh, research design, we were able to see whether how you talk about the movement, whether it's generating more or less support or more or less awareness of the movement itself. So can you tell me a little bit about the opt-out movement? Like what is the opt-out movement? So the opt-out movement is a tough thing to describe because the name itself suggests that this is about parents who are opting out their kids from uh, standardized testing. And this is what the movement is known for. Uh, by the action the title uh, is describing or suggesting. However, in our research, we discovered that the opt-out movement is more than uh, the testing. It's a contemporary movement in the U.S. Uh, where parents, educators, and others are coming together to protest what they see as uh, the problems with current education reforms in the U.S. Uh, so these people... Uh, as we found, are not only protesting testing, but are also protesting the fact that testing is now being linked, or there is aspiration by policymakers to link testing to uh, holding teachers accountable in terms of salaries, of promotion. And these people care about the role of uh, corporations in education. So it's more than just the testing. And I think. Um, this is the best way just to start understanding the movement. It's, it's not only about opting out, it's really about critique of current reforms in uh, education in the United States. And when did this sort of reform or this sort of movement emerge? So that's a good question. The, uh, in some media analysis that I've conducted with my student here, we realized that uh, there are some um, news stories in New York Times and other national media describing parents uh, protesting tests as early as uh, mid-2000. Uh, parents uh, protesting, for example, uh, the field test of different assessments, etc. But I think the movement became a thing in terms of uh, visible and publicly recognized in the summer of 2015, when the New York Times had an article in the news section describing the movement as so strong that one-fifth, 20% of students in New York State opted out of testing in that year. So I think we can say that 2015 is the moment when the movement is maturing enough and there is so much attention. But there are at least a couple of years beforehand where the movement is uh, starting to happen, but I don't think it was on the national radar yet. And do we know anything about the, the sort of levels of participation in this movement by state? Because, I mean, you just mentioned that 20% of students in New York State are opting out. I mean, are, are we finding similar statistics in other states in America? So we know from what Department of Education, you know, across different states are reporting, 
We know that there is a high variability in the opt-out uh, movement across states. So for example, in uh, New York, as I said, 20%. However, in North Carolina, where opt-out is just not possible legally for parents to opt-out, we know only about uh, less than a percent that is uh, trying to do that or advocating for it. So you said in New York State that there's 20% of the students that are, are dropping out. Do we know if this opt-out movement uh, looks different or there's different levels of participation in the different states in America? Like, what does the distribution of uh, participation look like across America? So the information that we have about the movement across different states is uh, usually coming from two sources. One is Department of Education uh, across the states reporting about opt-out. And from that data, we know that uh, states like um, Colorado, for example, have higher opt-out rates. For example, uh, it's ranging from 8 to 15%, depends on the grade. There are at least 10 other states that had high level of opt-out in the past two, three years. And we know that not necessarily from their own reporting, but from the policy reaction coming from Washington, D.C. Uh, in 2015-2016. Uh, back then, under the Obama administration, uh, the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education, sent out a letter to 11 states that had high levels of opt-out and asked these states or maybe warned or sanctioned these states to take action and to care of the movement so they won't get any sanctions uh, later on. This uh, letter provided us some kind of information about what's going on in other states. Some activists and some organizations are documenting also opt-out uh, patterns across the states, but I'm not sure uh, whether this information is accurate in terms of how many are opting out. From our study, we got responses from 45 uh, states. Some states we had a lot of responses, like for example, New York or New Jersey, and other states we had fewer. But from our study, it seems like in different states there are pockets of opting out, and in some states it's really getting a shape of a massive opting out, like New York or Colorado, as I said before. So I guess I, I want to step back a little bit and ask, like, what does this opting out actually even look like? Do parents, do they make the decision and then simply not send their child to school on the day of the test? Or are the students like, they go into the test and then when it's handed out, they get up in mass protest and kind of walk out of the test? Like, how does it actually look on the ground? That's a wonderful uh, question because the, the way the movement looks I think is shaping um, how much we know about it. And I'll explain what I'm saying. So usually parents need, uh, if they want to opt out, need to sign a form and to inform the school that their kids will not take uh, the exam. So the kids will stay at home and won't take the exam at that day. Some school systems are requ requiring kids to come to schools even if they are not taking the exam and to be in the class where their peers are taking the exam and just to stare uh, on their notes or on the computer. Uh, and that's a way 
and we heard it from a couple of parents, not couple, many parents, saying that that's a way of the school system to sanction or to threaten the kids and the families from not opting out. Right. So there's like some sort of peer pressure that gets created by having the students sit there and not take the test. Exactly. Exactly. So that's uh, how some school systems are trying to discourage parents from opting out. But I want to go back to the comments I made earlier is that the fact that this movement is happening in organizations within schools and not in the streets, I think that this difference is really affecting how the public is getting to know about the movement and how much power or visibility it has. Imagine that we had thousands, 20, 20% of the education system in New York is something like a um, couple of hundred thousand of, of kids. Imagine, imagine that these kids and families will protest in the streets for three years in a row. I'm sure that will hit the, the front pages of newspapers. But because this movement is happening within organizations, within institutions like schools, it's more difficult for them to get the visibility that other movements get. So this is not a visible movement, you're saying? So it's not a publicly visible movement uh, in terms of we don't see them in the streets. But the public, in a follow-up study that we conducted last year, we found that the public is aware of the movement. The question is whether this awareness translates into, into support of the movement, and that's where we don't find yet strong evidence for that. Right. So, like, why isn't it, why aren't parents and students being encouraged to make this movement visible on the streets, like you said, rather than inside schools? Uh, that's a good question. I think that that's a strategic decision or tactical decision that the movement is making. It will be interesting to look in future studies on the diversity of actions that uh, participants are taking in addition to opting out. In our survey, we have some information about that, and we know that they do take other activities, for example, contacting policymakers in their states or their districts, or writing a letter or signing a petition. However, uh, participation in more visible activities like protesting uh, is less frequent in the movement. That I think it's, it's, it's a matter of what kind of uh, tactical decision the movement is making about this issue. And who's leading this movement? We, in our study, we didn't look at the leadership, who is leading it, but from what I'm uh, reading in terms of um, online websites and other stories, um, there are different leaderships in different states. So in New York, we have a combination of both educators and parents who are leading, who are leading the movements. Uh, at the national level, there is a united opted out organ, opting out organization. And that organization is led by, when we did a st study, by uh, six or eight coordinators that brought together different perspectives and uh, diversity of opinion around the movement. And this leadership, if I, if, if I need to characterize them, uh, they include educators in terms of uh, professors in schools of education, educators in terms of teachers, parents or former teachers. Uh, so it's really um, an interesting mix of both uh, teachers slash educators and parents who are active and leading this movement. And do we know anything about like the political ideologies of some of these opt-out members? I mean, like, is this a political act that is happening? So the, the, the findings of our survey from 2016 were really interesting because we found that 
Although the movement includes a lot of uh, liberal or progressives in the American context, it also includes a lot of conservatives or people that vote Republican Party in previous elections. So it's a movement that brings together both sides of the political spectrum. What is interesting is that um, our analysis suggests that the different groups in terms of the political or political ideology uh, in the movement support the movement or engage in the movement for different reasons. And I'll give you an example. When you look at the, at the question of the common core, in the media, many uh, media reports are suggesting that the common core or the opposition to, to the common core is what drives the movement. In our study, we found that only one quarter, 25% of the respondents said that they are taking part of the, in the movement because they oppose the common core. However, when you compare the, this motivation across uh, the three political ideologies, liberal, middle of the road, and conservative, that's where you see the striking difference. For example, 16% of uh, liberal respondents said that they participate because they oppose the common core. However, 45% of conservatives endorse that reason. So you can see how conservatives are more in the movement, are more motivated because of their opposition to common core compared to liberal or middle of the road. And it's interesting that if you look on other reasons, for example, opposition to the growing role of corporations in schools, that's a motivation that is more common among liberals and middle-of-the-road people and less common among conservative people. So this is interesting. So there's a political movement afoot, this opt-out movement, that is actually cutting across political divisions in America um, for critiquing current education reforms, like you said. But, the, you know, they, they, there's different reforms to critique, but it kind of lumps everyone together into this opt-out movement. That's pretty interesting to think about. So uh, theoretically speaking, from the perspective of social movement theory, this is a case of the strange bedfellows where a movement brings together different political uh, actors from different sides of the political spectrum to come together and collaborate on this task. They might disagree with why they are coming to the movement or what they want to accomplish, but it seems like in this movement they agree on the action itself or about the critique of the larger educational reform direction in the U.S. But, and I would imagine that success that could come from this movement would look different. In terms of what they perceive it right, to be. Right, exactly. Yeah, that is a possibility. We didn't look at this issue, and that will be a definitely interesting direction for future research, to look on what they are hoping to accomplish through participating in the movement. So how does this movement spread, right? I mean, because you are, we're cutting across political divisions in America, and, you know, we often hear about the, there's bubbles in America and people kind of only hear what they want to hear. So how does a movement like the opt-out movement actually spread and go across these political divisions in America? I mean, it's pretty incredible. So we ask people about how they were mobilized to action. Who first told them about the movement? And we were, we were surprised in the beginning to see that uh, almost two-fifths, uh, 39%, of the sample heard uh, about the movement first time from social media. So it's definitely an important tool, social media, to spread the message 
around the movement. And indeed, uh, we found that social media being Twitter or uh, Facebook is a core element in the organization of the movement. We can see state opt-out Facebook pages and we can see very local uh, Facebook pages uh, where people that might know each other in the community can come together and collaborate on social media to spread the message uh, around. So social media is definitely one way that this is spreading, but there are other ways that include more interpersonal social networks and uh, connections. So some people are hearing about the movement from teachers and educators who are taking part in the movement. And some other people are hearing about the movement through friends, neighbors, or even other parents in the school. And indeed, one of the most common mode of activism that our respondents shared with us is trying to convince other parents to take uh, part in this movement and to opt their kids out of the uh, testing. Do you think that this movement would have existed earlier? Like, I mean, you know, like the 39% of people being mobilized through social media kind of suggests that this is, a, in many ways, a social media movement as well, right? And it, I mean, it maybe makes sense that this movement really took off in 2015, like you're saying. Uh, because before that, the, maybe social media wasn't as prevalent. I mean, I'm just trying to think through, you know, what are the implications for this participation uh, and mobilization through social media? So technology is part of the story here, but I, I, I will be cautioned because we conducted our study through social media. That's how we distributed the link uh, to the questionnaire. So I'm, I, I suspect that social media is part of the story, but I'm, I'm not sure that that's the main thing. I think that what happened with uh, the media is that there is a combination of factors that come together and in you know, the 2015 helped the movement to emerge or to become more widely spread. I think part of it is the fact that more assessments attached to Common Core were uh, being launched and implemented. And also, I think teachers were seeing more and more efforts to connect student test scores to their uh, promotion, evaluation, and tenure. And I think that the whole discussion about whether we can use students' that, uh, uh, test scores with uh, the concept of value-added models, I think that was also part of the opportunity structure around the movement that really helped it to emerge and to become a, a larger thing as we see it today. Does the traditional media treat the opt-out movement differently than it's reported on social media? Preliminary analysis that we did about the media suggests that at least the national media, that's where uh, my student and I were looking at, uh, newspapers like the New York Times and Washington Post and others um, are not necessarily conveying the um, complexity of the movement. There is a lot of focus there on uh, the opting out from testing and the issue of the common core. However, the movement is much more complicated than that. As I said uh, earlier, uh, it's a movement that brings together a lot of critique of current education reform. So I, I, I don't want to say that the media is unfair to the movement, but I think the media is um, not giving us the whole picture. Now, in interviews we conducted 
over the years, I think one of the problems is that many newspapers uh, are not having anymore a special journalist on education. So the cover of education issues in many newspapers uh, is lacking. Uh, so it could be that that's one reason why we don't have uh, a lot of in-depth analysis of the opt-out movement in media. We didn't do any research yet on local newspapers and how they cover the opt-out movement. Although from anecdotes, I know from the Rochester area, for example, I know that there is more attention to the opt-out movement and to the case that the movement is trying to make uh, in local newspapers. But again, this is based on anecdote and not any systematic research yet. And do you know anything about the opposition to the opt-out movement? I mean, I know you said that there are some schools that are making students sit in the test even though they're not taking it as a sanction. But do we know about the broader opposition to this movement? So we have a couple of sources of opposition. One is the education system itself, and very clearly the federal government in the letter to 11 states that had high, relatively high opt-out rates, we know that that's one source of the opposition. The education space in the U.S. is a great believer in testing as the base for many education reforms and action. Uh, when you think about accountability in the U.S., uh, people immediately think about testing. So you can understand why they will oppose or try to curb the movement from being too much successful. But there are other sources of support or lack of endorsement coming from the general public. When we conducted in last summer in 2017, a public opinion survey looking at how, the, how Americans view the movement, we heard a lot of critique from uh, the opposition to these parents who are opting out, saying that these parents are uh, helicopter parents that are overprotective of their kids, uh, these uh, voices of opposition suggested that schools and education systems know best what is good for their kids, so we should trust them. And if they are saying that uh, we should have this testing, then this is important. So these are the two main themes that we saw in um, comments from uh, the public about endorsing or not endorsing uh, parents who are opting out. So your research, you said you did a 2016 survey, so when President Obama was in office. Do we know if things have changed now that President Trump is in office? And, you know, do we know if Betsy DeVos, the, the Secretary of Education, w is supportive of this movement or opposes this movement? Do we know anything about the kind of current state of this movement? No, we don't know um, how the change in the administration is shaping the movement. Uh, my research team at Teachers College is planning to replicate the study again in the spring of 2018, two years after the initial survey. And I think this will give us two data points to compare how the movement looked like under different regimes. It will be very interesting mm. to see what happened. When I'm thinking about the current um, ideas, policy ideas or ideology that Secretary DeVos is uh, uh, bringing to the table, with her support to privatization and non-public school actors or sectors, I would suspect that that will bring more energy to the movement because the movement is more, is more than testing. It's really about this, the role of cooperation and private actors. So that will be interesting to see. Uh, whether that will have an effect. 
but I'm also sensitive to the fact that post election in the US, we have a lot of activism and marching, a resistance movement against the Trump administration. And it could also be that these kind of activities will uh, take out energy from other movements like the opt-out. Um, and so we might see a negative effect on the movement. We don't know. And I think it's important to look at this issue, uh, not only because it's interesting, but also because theoretically this will help us to understand how changes in the regime, in administration, mm. is affecting social movements. Yeah, I mean, I guess what's so interesting to me is that the, you know, Betsy DeVos is very pro-privatization in many ways, but Trump has been on record saying that he opposes the Common Core. So that kind of goes right down the middle of why people are joining this opt-out movement, right? So they would kind of find common ground with the, the opposition to Common Core, but would not find common ground when it comes to the issue of privatization. Excellent. So that will be a good way to test whether it's really about the common core that is driving the movement. And as I said earlier, um, only one quarter of our respondents were driven by that reason. Mm. And they are specifically uh, conservatives or from those who voted the Republican Party. Uh, so I wonder what that will do to their motivation. Yeah. But testing and standardized assessment, um, even before the common core, part of the education policy in the U.S., uh, especially after no, uh, no Child Left Behind. So if the tests are still there, I don't see how changes in the Common Core will affect that. Mm. But that's something, again, this is only speculation, and we need to wait and see what will happen once we collect the data. Right. So as a final question, I mean, I, I guess maybe some backstory. I, I, I always hated tests when I was in school, and... Uh, unfortunately, the, the opt-out movement wasn't available. Like, it wasn't an option for me to opt out. I just simply didn't show up, and then I failed tests. But, you know, I, one of the, I guess the question I have is, you know, I don't know if you have children, um, but, you know, what would be, if you did have children, would you opt your children out of these tests? Oh, what a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we don't have kids yet, uh, but if I had kids at this uh, time, uh, and they had to go through assessments, uh, standardized assessments that I don't necessarily think um, are helpful or useful for their teachers and for policy making. I think that I would opt out my kids as well. And um, I will be taking uh, part in this movement because I believe that it's really important for parents to be involved in schools. And to be involved in schools and education is not only to pick up the color of the doors. It's really about thinking together with the educators and the teachers about what is the best way to uh, facilitate the development of kids in schools. Um, Oren Peacemoni Levy, thank you so much for joining Fresh End. It's, it's a, such a fascinating topic. and. When you do the next study in 2018, please come back on the show and let us know what you find. Thank you very much, Will, for inviting me and for allowing me to share the findings. And thank you very much for hosting this wonderful resource called Fresh Air. Oren Pismoni-Levy is an assistant professor of international and comparative education at Teachers College, Columbia University. You can find a link to Oren's co-written report discussed in the show today on freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. 
If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.